RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Wednesday morning at Reality Check Radio is Legal Hub Morning. Last couple of mornings, it's been Nick Kearney joining me, and Katie Ashby Coppins has been off on other duties. Now she is with us, and Nick is off on other duties, but more than just Katie. And Katie, welcome back. Thank you. We have Dr. Alison Goodwin, who I know a bit now. Alison, welcome to our Legal Hub. Thanks, Paul. Good morning. And Dr. Cindy Davilius from Nelson, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. Okay, so doctors and the law. That's what we're looking at this morning, and this is going to be really interesting. Um, I'm sure you heard me talking to Alison Goodwin last week and the latest on her case, and we'll probably touch on that as we go through this chat. So, Katie, do you want to lead off on the first kind of point we're going to be uh, looking at in this chat? No trouble, and uh, thanks for the opportunity and such an um, awesome opportunity to be able to catch up with uh, doctors and being able to talk about you know the different balancing um, considerations because of course there isn't always a um, one fit one size fits all approach to all to, to these kinds of things. So the first question that we were do- uh, wanting to talk about today was um, whether there is a legal duty for a doctor to give informed consent. Okay, well, what what is what is informed consent? What is it? I think uh, I'll just jump in there. Informed consent is is a discussion between the doctor and the patient, and it's usually the doctor who's actually providing the treatment. So it's not sort of the house surgeon or or the intern um, about not just a single intervention, but ongoing treatment. And it, the purpose of that is really for the patient to have control over what goes into their body and that's from basically from the medical council's own guidance is any treatment needs to the patient needs to fully understand um, what the potential risks and benefits are and they need to agree with it we can't force treatment on anyone Alison do you want to make a comment on informed consent well yes informed consent I guess um started or the more formal version of it started with the um the Nuremberg code after World War II when people were being experimented on uh, without their consent and without their knowledge or understanding and so um the Nuremberg code was written up with 10 criteria related to uh, I, I mean it, it started really with experimental conditions so if people were part of an experiment then that was when the Nuremberg code was um discussing but that sort of found was the foundation of modern informed consent uh, where patients need to be yes everything needs to be explained the the benefits of what's going to be done whether it be a medicine or a medical procedure or a surgical operation uh, but patients also need to be informed of the risks uh, and uh, uncertainties, so things that we aren't sure about, um, and alternatives. What else could they do? What if they do nothing? What if they do this? What if they do the other thing? So, you know, there's a few parts to informed consent. It's not just telling someone, oh, this is the best um, thing since sliced bread, you know, since yeah, sliced bread, whatever. Um, the latest surgical operation, this is perfect, wonderful, off, let's do it. Uh, you need to be told all the other things, uh, you know, what might go wrong, what your other options are. Uh, and, you know, the things we don't know about it. Yeah, I mean, um, I had, in my case, I had a call from a, my medical centre urging me to take, in this case, the Vax. 
So I um, said to the woman, I think she was the nurse, not the doctor, can you tell me, asked a few questions about it, what's in this thing, how does it work, what are the upsides, what are the downsides? I could tell that in the call that was made to me, there was not even one thought of even going anywhere near informed consent at all. So how well practiced is that? Well, I think prior to the last three years, I think um, I think it was fairly well practiced. I think most patients would have, um, well, I guess it depends on the time and the doctor and the understanding of the patient and the interest of the patient. You know, some patients just go to the doctor and say, doctor, tell me what to do. I'll just do it and don't really want to know everything, uh, whereas other people want to know every last little detail. But ideally, the process should go on until the patient is satisfied they have enough information to make their decision. Uh, and and I would have said prior to three years ago uh, that that was done overall pretty well. Right. Yeah, I'd just like to add that, it, again, it is the person who's administri administering the treatment that has to get the consent. So you, you really want somebody who's reasonably well trained, um, not just in the, in the you know, putting the needle in an arm or, you know, taking out a splinter or whatever it happens to be, but is also trained in... Um, um, giving and um, getting informed consent. Because if I got <clears throat> reminded and, and said, okay, yeah, that's a good point, I'll be in in two days and got it done and had an adverse reaction. Basically, I had unleashed upon me someone who didn't even understand the concept of it. Well, yes, I think the law was changed uh, to allow these non-medical people to be vaccinators and the the clauses about needing to know about the product and about the diseases that they were preventing were removed as long as they were sort of under the supervision of somebody else. So if there was a nurse sort of down the corridor that knew about it, these other people that didn't know anything about it would be administering um, injections. So I guess the question is, is it a legal requirement to obtain informed consent? Yes. Patient. So in my case, it wasn't. I chose not to. So therefore, there must be tens and tens of thousands of cases where the law has been broken here. Mm. Well, I think it's it's not just legal. It's it's moral and ethical as well. No, well, that goes without saying. But legal is where people pay a price, isn't it? Well, <laughs> that's what the law is supposed to be. Um, but you know, is it? You know, is, is that the way it turns out? Um, and I think, from many doctors' point of view, the moral and ethical concerns are actually more important. Now, if we're just going to look at the legal concerns, obviously those are those are big concerns too. But morally and ethically, we, you know, do we want to be uh, forcing a treatment on a patient? Yeah, I, I guess. Um... The legal thing I'm asking, because I'm not a legal person, I have no clue, is that uh, if you want to get justice for not being given enough information to formed to form informed consent, the the only path is a legal path, right? To get somebody punished for doing that, to use raw language. Well, there's the I mean, the Health and Disability Commissioner would potentially deal with an. Uh, you know, questions about lack of informed consent as well. And so could a um, professional body? Sure. 
because it, it's set out in most of their codes uh, of mm. ethics. Uh, so they're more likely to be the organisations that would deal with the ethical uh, issues and certainly moral ones. Um, and then you've got also the codification of informed consent in the Health and Disabilities Act and the codes of Health and Disability Service Commissioner rights. Uh, but again, those uh, the Health and Disability Commissioner would be the one more likely uh, to be considering that. I'm not sure that I've seen um, criminal proceedings that have arisen out of a person not being given informed consent. Yeah, and I think also because we have ACC, of course, we don't have those criminal proceedings. But the Health and Disability Commissioner can then refer to the Medical Council, who can then refer to the Tribunal, who can then deregister or fine a practitioner. So whether that's, you know, that's probably a question that I'm more interested in, is, is that a legal process or is that sort of a paralegal process? And I'm not, that's not actually clear in my mind. We just know that it happens. Mm. Yeah, and that's where you've got a situation where you've got regulators looking after things uh, a bit more than, you know, the legal process where we've got judge a civil action or a um, criminal action where the Crown's taking a proceeding uh, against someone for uh, criminal conduct. Uh, there is no provision in the, uh, in criminal law where failure to give informed consent gives rise to a, a criminal offence. Even if it results in death? Well, that would be then slightly different because if it does result in death, then you've got a situation of murder or manslaughter. Um, manslaughter, if you didn't intend to kill the person but did, uh, the actions to kill the person is not the informed consent or otherwise. It was some other event that killed them. Right. Okay. But Gerard, I mean, I haven't heard of a case, a criminal case, where somebody has died due to lack of informed consent. Um, and I don't, I don't know how easy it would be to prove that either. Um, you'd be more likely if it was negligence. Um, so I think for, for people who feel that they were coerced or they weren't given full information, the recourse is to go to the Health and Disability Commissioner and put a complaint in. But they're swamped yeah, well, at the moment. The HDC is swamped and things are taking <laughs> at least a year to get allocated. Is that some sort of class? Is there any way you could sort of bunch together and do some sort of class action type thing? Because people have got to, they're going to get justice here somehow. You can't have people who, you know, celebrities in car parks injecting people and then being injured or dying and then and people getting away with that. Can you? Yeah, well, I mean, Australia has a class action. Um, so, how, you know, ACC is, is a sort of a bit of a barrier. I, I'm not sure if a class action can be taken in New Zealand. But it's not an accident, is it? Uh, you don't need to have an accident for it to be covered under ACC. Okay. You could have a... Um, well, it's called accident compensation legislation, but you could have a situation where um, uh, a medical event causes someone to die, and of course, it was not, not no doubt not intended, um, but that's called a treatment injury. Because it's interesting, um, I'm sure you're probably aware that there's been a, a an OIA response that's been published or, or, or put up on social media. The OIA um, question was um, regarding the COVID-19 vaccine, though the response was mentioned 
the COVID gene serum. <laughs> so, okay, that could have been a, a slip or whatever. But here's the thing. If it was, I'm telling you, I'm an ag guy. If um, if that was promoted as a gene serum, no one would have taken it. No one. No, I think you're right. If people were fully informed about what exactly it was, how poorly it had been tested and what it could actually do, uh, and people had been free to choose, I think a large number of people would have said, no thanks. Well, it's like calling an item of confectionery a milky bar of vaccine. Really, mm. if it's not what it, they say it is, then it's not what they say it is. So well, that that, that breaches informed consent from the very first moment. Yes, yeah, calling yeah. it a vaccine. Yeah. Well, they changed the definition to get it to fall within. Yeah, but the average person was unaware of that. Of course. Uh, the other thing with informed consent was the requirement to advise people of the risk of COVID. Uh, and in, in, to them themselves as a personal, as an individual, because of course, informed consent is a, a, an individualized treatment, uh, which might be different for a 60 year old versus being, um, you know, for a 16 year old. And that really comes down to the risk of the particular uh, issue. And uh, with the, the mandates and the rules and the continuing release of these products to uh, younger and uh, younger age cohorts, um, no informed consent was given uh, to them with respect to the actual risk. Uh, and that was, you know, also uh, a major issue. The question for a civil proceeding, though, would be whether or not the failure to give informed consent uh, caused the injury. And I think it might have been just one of the factors that led to the injury being caused. The receipt of the product um, was, uh, you know, maybe the thing that caused the injury. But again, you've got to take that and create that causative link, um, which can be done by way of, I think, 12 different uh, methods or theories, which is, you know, time between when you receive the product to when you first, yeah, when you first had a response um, uh, and a few other uh, considerations. So there's quite a bit that goes into that causative link. Uh, what if the Prime Minister said uh, it was safe and effective and I wouldn't end up with ho in hospital and I would die if I took it? Well, that's different again because that's not. I, I could argue consent. if I was just a. That's kind of informed. That informed. See that if it's the prime minister saying it, I'm informed. I consent. But she's not your doctor, and there's the Medicines Act legislation which talks about advertising, yeah. and uh, you know th there are major issues with. Does it have the... to be your own personal doctor? No. So it can just be a doctor. Uh, well, it needs to be a doctor that's giving you like Ashley Bloomfield treatment. Doctor. No, again, it has to be about you as a oh, person, okay. not just some generic uh, concept. Well, it's not fit for purpose then, is it? No, and I think we're conflating and confusing you know, quite a few different issues here. The advertising... No, but I'm talking about how people decide to do something. Yeah, and this is why uh, the Medicines uh, Act provides that you're not certain people aren't allowed to give advertising, you're not allowed to mislead and deceive. And, and many of the... Uh, comments coming out of the podium truth were misleading about the safety and effectiveness of these products. They were saying they were relying on experts uh, when the experts were telling them something quite different, and especially in respect to dosing intervals and um, vaccinating young, healthy teenagers. Um, so, you know, that's not informed, but that's not informed consent. Right. You know, that's misleading right. and deceptive advertising. Hmm. But yes, ideally, I think what Paul's saying is informed consent uh, is individualized. You know, you can't 
inform the whole country because the whole country's risk benefit is not the same. Each individual person has a different risk benefit um, assessment and, you know, a different appetite for risks. You know, some people want every medicine that's on the market. Some people never want a medicine for anything, even if they're dying. Uh, you know, and that's part of the decision when somebody's, you know, you've got the information, but part of the decision-making process is your underlying philosophy on health and on life. Uh, you know, so all of that needs to be taken into account. I think the concept might need to be reinvented in a way, of how, how it's given, right? Given all the voices and inputs. and Maybe the, maybe the principle of informed consent and how it was originally outlined should just be upheld. Yes, you know, it is yeah. a principle and a cornerstone yeah. of our society, uh, one that we've applied for, uh, you know, 60, 70, 80 years. And, um, you know, it, it, it's like everything in the last three years. It was ignored, it was inconvenient, and it was just never applied. Yes, just upholding the Medical Council's original statement on informed consent uh, would be good. Are we done on that question? I think we could keep going forever on that one. Um, but one of the points was whether or not the guidance that was issued um, during uh, the COVID um, era was uh, a guidance that would take precedence over the ability for a doctor to not have to give informed consent. Um, and so uh, this was a situation where a guidance was given, a doctor was not able to talk negatively um, against, uh, about the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, and, and that, Essentially, if you put that into practice, there might be a situation where a person, it wasn't appropriate for them to have the COVID vaccine. And in giving that person informed consent, which is individual to that person, uh, whether or not the guidance um, of not being able to talk negatively with respect to COVID-19 vaccine um, had to be applied. Now, you, of course, giving informed consent properly for a situation where someone couldn't receive a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, you would have to say this product's not right for you and that could be inferred to be negative and therefore not in accordance with the guidelines but it still complies with the informed consent um, requirements so it's the situation where you have taken away the ability for a doctor to well endeavoured to take away the ability of a doctor to give informed consent on the basis of a guideline you know the guideline all well and good you can apply it to the best of your abilities but it has to be suitable and appropriate for the situation, which is that individual. I mean, there does appear to be two conflicting statements on the Medical Council website. And the one is, well, what is not so much on the website, but the guidance that doctors received saying that you know, anti-vaccine sentiment would not be tolerated and that we should discuss the benefits of the vaccine. And then um, at the same time, they have a um, statement on informed consent um, particularly the older ones, which said you need to discuss everything, benefits and risks and risks of not doing anything. So th there are actually two competing statements. What has happened is the Medical Council has used the guidance um, to investigate doctors rather than the statement on informed consent. Yes, and that's where it would be interesting to know what is the legal standing of those two, the pre-existing um, statement on informed consent that has been around for a number of years on the Medical Council website and this new guidance statement that didn't go through any sort of process of um, discussion with the profession or discussion with the public about that it was just put there and assumed to be the law mm -hmm. and you shall follow this. 
Well, if I was advising on that legally, there would be a um, order of precedence. And my view is that the um, informed consent statement would have precedential value over some uh, guidance. Uh, so when you've got two conflicting um, issues, which happen all the time in law, you've got to consider there's various things that you consider, but one of them is the precedential value. So which takes precedence over the other? And in this case, it would be that the um, statement of informed consent would take precedential value over our guidance. The guidance, the wording itself is, you know, our guide, not, mm. you know, not a require, not a statement. Um, and it's not been elevated to anything greater than simply a guide. Um, the guidance, Alison, did you say, um, was along the lines of of pushing the benefits of the vaccine, the benefits, speaking in yeah. favour of the benefits. But they had no clue what the benefits were. Well, there was a lot of, lot of wishful thinking about the benefits. <laughs> so there were no benefits to honestly talk about, really. Well, I mean, in theory, we were supposed to say, well, it stops transmission, it stops uh, you getting sick, you won't end up in hospital, you, well, you won't catch COVID, you won't end up in hospital, you won't die. Those are all the benefits we were supposed to be um, spouting. Which didn't exist. Well, as yeah. uh, you know, as time has gone on, it's become obvious that, yes, a number of those benefits. Well, we knew that, that they didn't there. exist before the thing even landed here. Well, you could be suspicious with the um, original clinical data that was published, yeah. Just saying. <laughs> all right. Do we get on to, well, that sort of covers the right to hear a doctor speaking freely. We sort of were in that zone just then, weren't we, uh, in terms of publicly speaking, I suppose. Um, those two uh, things, the guidance and the principle of uh, informed consent sort of cover that question off, do you think? Uh, to some extent. I think the question more relates to uh, whether or not the right to freedom of speech, um, as specified in the Bill of Rights Act, uh, is one that you know supports a doctor being able to speak freely. You know, not necessarily inside the uh, treatment room uh, when they're they're meeting with a patient, but whether or not they've got the ability to uh, speak publicly about things. Um, you know, doctors all the time have conferences; they speak publicly about new research and things that they're they're. Um, uh, presenting on or, you know, um, currently studying. Uh, that happens all the time. But we've got the situation now where there were a number of doctors that spoke out about concerns they had uh, with, um, you know, the pandemic and, and the medical response. Uh, and they've been censored uh, and investigated. Uh, and it's a question of whether or not does that Bill of Rights to be able to speak freely apply um, in the situation where... Uh, you're not necessarily following the guideline. Is well, and the, Sorry, well, the, the other part of the, that equation is whether the public have a right to hear. You know, that freedom of expression goes both ways. It's a, a right to be able to say things, but it's also a right to be able to hear things. Uh, and so, you know, should the public have the right to hear a variety of doctors? And if not, who gets to choose which ones are heard? No, I mean, I think that, you know, we can look at Sue Gray's case, you know, lawyers and doctors are people too. And, you know, at what point do, are they not allowed to speak because they're lawyers and doctors? 
Um, and, and you know, it's not just on the on COVID matters, but you know, I, I'm in the nutritional space quite a lot, and you know, you've got a lot of doctors saying one thing and a lot of doctors saying another another thing, and they can say that as doctors in in public without being um, being investigated. But with this particular issue, you know, if we said anything that went against the COVID narrative, then uh, we could potentially be investigated and suspended, possibly. You know. And this is where it comes down to the situation where people are no longer being trusted to gather all the information that they choose to to make their own decisions. I hope there's silencing, clear silencing uh, from certain areas of the profession uh, to particular topics uh, or, or the uh, if they're coming from an aspect that's not agreeable um, to the uh, medical council and you know they medical council is really becoming a bit of a law unto itself well that's what it feels like <laughs> yes I, I think the frustrating thing that we were grappling with particularly in, in the beginning was you know uh the practice of medicine so here we have the prime minister saying things are you know this particular in intervention is safe and effective and influences and you know sports people <laughs> and media people um uh, if they are allowed to say that, but doctors aren't allowed to speak freely, it would seem to be a very uneven situation. Well, I was going to mention that. So anyone saying anything positive in favour of um, doctors, no problem. Knock yourself out. Say as much as you like. But under that sort of thinking, they should be shutting the F up as well, right? Well, they shouldn't really be practising medicine without a licence. You know, if they're giving medical advice, telling people this is safe and effective, you should go and get this procedure. Well, is that not practicing medicine? Well, well I'm, I'm t but I'm talking about doctors. So presumably, doctors who, you know, had favourable opinions of this, they weren't right. hassled. They weren't shut down. They weren't told to zip it. No, no, they were given the platforms to speak. But under the, if you wanted to be fair, they should have been silent as well. That's right. Well, I well, mean, better than that, we should both have, you know, or all been able to be heard. I mean, it's I mean, much under more their sensible. thinking is what I'm saying. Under their thinking, you know, right? Well, yes, under their thinking, but yeah, much more sensible to have a wide variety of opinions from a wide number of people uh, in an emergency. Absolutely, and that's the duty of journalism, and you know, getting both sides of the story. Uh, but you know, even more importantly, is there are express provisions in the Medicines Act about medical adver advertisements, and you know, a medical advertisement is an advertising relating or likely to cause any person to believe that it relates to any medicine or medical device or any ingredient or component thereof um, or to any method of treatment. So, you know, we've got uh, sports persons, uh, prime ministers, various numbers of, you know, politicians, public figures standing um, up, speaking out on various platforms about and we now <clears throat> We now know that um, the government paid media for story placements. Oh, they did. I think it was Cranmer's, 100. Um, block. And, there was and, 116 million spent also. On, no, no, but actual story placements in actual news programs. All right, and in addition to advertising. Yeah, yeah. So um, we know that the government paid $300,000 to TVNZ to get a climate story put in John Campbell's series of uh, programs in John Campbell's breakfast show when he's doing the breakfast show. So what I'm saying is we don't know now if some of the journalism surrounding the COVID reporting was paid for or not. 
No, we can assume it was, I think. <laughs> I think that was called the Public Interest Journalist Fund, wasn't it? Uh, no, these are specifically funded stories placed by the government. No, journalists don't write stories anymore. They just wait for the Well, when you've got someone like John machine. Campbell, who I know personally, who holds himself up to be the cornerstone of journalistic ethics, buying into that, you know that you can't trust any story you've heard now. Unless you're listening to so. the Czech radio. Unless it's here, yeah. <laughs> but that's a very serious thing. It is. It's very serious. Because uh, th that could have been happening all the way through the COVID thing, and that would explain why journalists, through their organisations, were soft on the whole thing. Well, and there was only a few that actually turned around and left their organisation because it went against their moral compass. I was one of them. As I said, only I a few. Yeah, there weren't many. <laughs> Pretty lonely club, that one. So we can assume that a lot of that reporting, that journalistic reporting, was actually placed, they were actually specifically placed stories and narratives that were paid for. Yep, absolutely. Uh, none of it surprises you. No, no, I don't think anything surprises anybody anymore. No. Oh, well, okay. Um, so the Sue Gray case is quite a good sort of, to get our bearings on that, That that's quite a good sort of place to start, right? And yes, we, it's very we, useful. We kind of know about that. It's a very good decision, and it's helpful because it identifies the different hats that she was wearing. As it, was she speaking as a person, politician, or a lawyer? Uh, and again, we just saw uh, overreach of the law society uh, and really going after her for statements that they just didn't like. The interesting thing about some of what they said about Sue Gray, because I read the um, the findings, and Sam Bailey got the same sort of treatment. Not quite what she said but the way she said it. And when it came to Sam Bailey, they even described hand gestures, body language. So <laughs> it's not what you say, it's how you say it as well. So it would seem. Got to be careful of those uh, hand gestures. All right, so should we move on to Ivermectin? What are yes. we, um, what are we thinking about one. Ivermectin? Well, the um, Medical Council of New Zealand uh, is uh, allegedly, um, and I'm sure uh, Cindy and uh, Alison can talk to this more, but uh, investigating uh, practitioners for prescribing ivermectin. So how did that work then? Because as I understand it, and again, I'm, I'm not very smart, but ivermectin has been around for forever and a day. Billions of doses administered, anti-parasitic, I believe. So it's not as if that came down in the last shower, right? <laughs> That's ivermectin. It was already good to go. Am I right? Nobel, Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize uh, winner. Nobel Prize. Prize. That's it. Yeah. Uh, off, off, um, off patent. So able to be manufactured, uh, you know, by multiple different. Um, pharmaceutical companies uh, using that particular compound that makes up ivermectin. You as doctors, were you able to access this medicine for treatment of COVID? Well, I mean, it was quite interesting because there were reports coming out on the use of repurposed drugs, of which ivermectin was one. And initially, you know, prescriptions were done um, for people who were fearful of, of suffering with COVID and they wanted to have a little bit of a home kit. Um, or were sick, 
but what happened very quickly was that the pharmacists stopped dispensing it. Um, and so it was almost as if the supply ran out. And then we got a another another guidance statement from the, the College of General Practitioners stating that they did not recommend ivermectin for the use of um, treatment of COVID. And if we were to prescribe it, then um, we, we may not be able to defend ourselves. So, you know, just taking a step back, um, ivermectin is approved for the use of, uh, for treatment of certain para parasitic diseases. But even though it's not um, authorised for the treatment of a viral infection, practitioners are still legally able to prescribe it. And, and, and we do so every day in general practice with other medications. So we, we may prescribe antidepressants for, let's say, uh, menopausal symptoms and that sort of thing. So it is completely legal to prescribe a medication for off-label use, as it's called. So, so basically, again, this whole... Firstly, the pharmacists were uh, pre presuming, I'm not quite sure what happened there, but they weren't, weren't dis dispensing our prescriptions. And then um, we got this guidance statement from the college saying we, we, should, we shouldn't be using it. But again, it, we didn't, it's not a legal, um, a, a legal requirement that we don't use it. So, Alison? Yeah, well, yes, it's it's an approved. The thing is, there's there's approved medicines and there's unapproved medicines in New Zealand, and you're allowed to prescribe both. Uh, just if it's an unapproved medicine, uh, there's a few more um, hoops to jump through and documentation to do. But any approved medicine, which is what ivermectin is, can be used for whatever as long as the process of informed consent is undertaken. Uh, so it's it can be a an approved medicine, which means, you know, it's safe. It's uh, got a particular reason that it's been brought into New Zealand for. Um, but then there are, in addition to approved and unapproved medicines, there are approved and unapproved uses. So uh, treat using ivermectin for to treat COVID-19 would be an unapproved use, but of an approved medicine. And so as Cindy described, it's, a, um, it's an off-label prescription. You know, we're prescribing it for something else so yes it was as far as i can tell it was perfectly legal the whole time and these statements from from pharmac and the college of gps and the ministry of health about ivermectin being uh, not approved i mean there, there was no particular basis of that it didn't have to be approved it's a medicine in the pharmaceutical schedule we're allowed to use it for whatever as long as the patient's fully informed and it was all just you know, and I mean, it worked. Obviously, doctors thought, oh, no, I can't prescribe that. It's it's not safe. But the thing is, the safety had been determined by the previous 20 or 30 years of use. Um, so it's not so much an issue of it not being safe. It was more an issue of, well, is it is it or is it not effective? Uh, but, you know, that's to, for a patient and a doctor to have a discussion between themselves about, you know, whether, you know, if it's unlikely to harm you and it might be beneficial, well, do you want to try it? Um, and, you know, so that's where the patient and doctor should be talking. And what we have now is the government in the middle of that conversation saying to the doctor, well, no, if you prescribe that, uh, you're going to be hauled over the coals by the medical council. And that's where we've got to, you know, the, the medical council is jumping into the uh, medical council slash government is jumping into the consultation room. Mm. And we've seen that with quite a few things. We saw that with the exemptions, medical exemptions mm. being given, you know, a politician now had to uh, give you know, sign off on that, not a doctor. Uh, and now you've got a situation where uh, politicians uh, and uh, other boards are getting involved in a doctor's ability to treat an individual. Just yeah. on that thing you mentioned there, Katie, politicians 
refusing or not signing off on exemptions. And then the person who couldn't get the exemption takes the shot or the shots has a bad reaction or even worse. What's the status of that politician who who refused it? Uh, they've probably, uh, unless there's malfeasance in pro- public office, there's uh, uh, probably not much that you could do for them. The person would be, well, the person who was injured may get ACC, and in a, under ACC there is a bar to taking um, a personal injury claim, um, but a lot of the vaccine injuries aren't being accepted by uh, ACC on the basis of technicality. So then that falls outside of um, uh, ACC and arguably a person can take a personal injury claim. So a bit of a convoluted answer. Are they uh, eventually liable though? N- not, unless, not unless something you can point to something that su- suggests they've been negligent in office. But, uh, but, but signing... Not signing someone's exemption if you're not qualified to. It's like a plumber rewiring a house. You know, it's just you're probably going to electrocute yourself when you turn the light on because they don't know what they're doing. It's absolutely incredible. So, so that is negligence, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, well, I think it was. It was actually Bloomfield that was in charge of signing the exemptions, as far as I understand, uh, in New Zealand. So he is a doctor, though he's not sort of directly involved with the patients and. You know, doesn't know anything about their medical history or anything. Yeah, so how could you refuse that without knowing any information about the individual? And this is the way that situation was uh, unusual in that it was specified under legislation uh, and then regulations and orders. Uh, so this is how the exemption process came about. Exemptions got uh, written out of uh, the vaccination orders uh, and then new rules were uh, invented to deal with exemptions, which meant that you had to go through this political process as opposed to Mm. a doctor-patient confidentiality process. Uh, And that's the other thing. You've got client-patient or doctor-patient confidentiality and privilege, and here it's having to be shared with, um, you know. I'm sure I had a disability worker who looked after her son and she couldn't get her son an exemption. Now, I think... She toughed it out. But the person who refused the exemption is now the Prime Minister, according to her. I don't know, if Chris, I don't know if Chris Hipkins was given... I can't recall him... That's what she his, told me. His, I don't recall his role being one that... I don't think the COVID health response minister, who's not a doctor, had the ability to make decisions in respect of... Well, maybe she, of, she got that kind of wrong, but I'm sure that's what she said. Yeah, it was Ashley Bloomfield, Dr. Bloomfield, that was in charge of the um, yes or no to the exemptions, and the vast majority of them was no. And then ridiculously um, limited times for exemptions too. So if you had an anaphylaxis reaction, I think you were given one year of an exemption, and then you had to apply for your exemption again. But I'm not sure that your anaphylaxis changed. Well, yes, exactly. And I think the one year sounds very generous. I don't know that it was that long. Oh, was it three months, was it? Well, the things I've seen, three months, yes, when you right. had a nasty case of something. Hmm. Yeah, well, Not ideal. for someone like me who's just Mr. Dumb Guy on the street, I can't understand why you would ever, ever limit the exemptions of people like that when, when it's obvious there would be a risk to life and limb potentially. 
Paul, oh, yes, it's about it, health. Well, that's right. It sort of it go, it throws. But when it's not about of, health, and it's, it's it becomes more about actually injuring people. Yes, it flies like, in the face I, of all. I previous, find it hard um, to work it out. You know. I mean, previously, even if you weren't concerned about the about the patient, your medical practitioners would be very hesitant to to administer something that you'd had an anaphylactic anaphylactic shock to before. You know, just to, to protect themselves, they'd never do it. Uh, or under, only under very um, strict conditions. And so to suddenly say, oh, we'll have a crash cart ready for you and we'll mm. just bring you back to life. I mean, whew, I wouldn't be saying that. Uh, yeah, how do you explain that? <laughs> but that was happening day in, day out. I think there were special I, I, days I, that they were having crash cart. You know, those that had an anaphylactic reaction would how could you ever do that on a specific day because they'd have the crash yeah. cart room set up. I mean. Yeah, that's that completely sounds- abnormal. That's not normal medical practice. All right. Not much of about this is normal, really. Is it? <laughs> Just no. <laughs> drill down. It's crazy. All right. So um, does that cover off ivermectin? Just saying, from what I've seen, the reporting from the US is now it's okay to prescribe ivermectin Correct. to treat. So what- and the criminal com- the criminal um, offence in Australia has been removed. Uh, so you- now, why would that be? Because they've, they've, got, they've got it in enough hours. They're going right? to get, yes, that's right. They've got as many people as are going to get vaccinated. vaccinated. So you, you can see by that action that that was all about directing, you know, the sheep into the into the chute to get them in the truck, right? That's that's what that was all about. And also the situation where if they had another product out there that was able to respond to um, the virus, uh, then your ability to get provisional consent uh, and or emergency use authorization was uh, not available to you. Does that mean As the a- emergency use authorizations expire now that it's okay to use ivermectin? Uh, look, Australia was a slightly different situation. Um, I guess they'd already got provisional consent, so you know. So if you, matter. if I was to ask the um, the authorities why they they banned ivermectin or made it really hard to prescribe, they would tell me because we wanted everyone to get the injection no matter what, and we didn't care if there was another. If they're being oh, honest, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say that. No, but, but if they're, they're being honest, they would have to say that, wouldn't they? Oh, yes. Because that's the only answer there really is. Yeah. yeah. And so in New Zealand, the, the vaccine still only has provisional consent. It hasn't got full consent. Why not? Well, too many outstanding trial. problems. I mean, how many years and are we now? Well, yes, still, it's still in stage three clinical trials, which I think completed ended in May of this year. But uh, Pfizer certainly doesn't has an extra two years to be able to publish any of the results from that under their own uh, data sheet. So, uh, you know, they're still in clinical trials. But interestingly, I think the states has approved the COVID nineteen vaccines now. Yes, uh, I think that's so right. There must be different rules in respect to the stage of completion of the clinical trials. All right, and what about the the last question? Oh no, we've got another question here, though we might have covered it. What has happened to science debate discussion? Well, it's hit the deck, hasn't it? It's crashed and burned. Is really what's happened there? Yes, I don't think anyone would argue against that, would <laughs> would they? I think one one of my um, concerns that the Professional Conduct Committee raised was that um, I retweeted something which said that science that can't be questioned is propaganda, and that was one of my um, misdemeanors. 
So, Sorry, say that again. Um, Cindy, so say that again. One of my misdemeanors was retweeting um, a tweet which said, science that can't be questioned is propaganda. Right. That, that, the Medical Council was not happy with me doing that. And how did they explain how did they explain that that was wrong? Well, they just said um, the, the the tweets were disparaging of the medical profession. Oh, really? Were they boo hoo? Yeah, the thing is, they don't explain what's wrong with them. They list all these things that you've done uh, with the implication that there's something wrong with them, but and then leave it like that without actually explaining. Well, that's the tell, isn't it? Mm. And look, natural justice would require a fulsome explanation of what the offensive statement was and the reason why it was offensive. Uh, not or the reason why it was wrong. Or wrong, correct. Uh, and uh, the situation that we're finding time and time again is, you know, doctors have said things, they've got in trouble, those things they've said have turned out to be true. In a situation of um, uh, defamation, you know, defense, sorry, defense to defamation is truth. Um, so... Surely there has to be an element of that applied here. But again, you've got a uh, medical council being a law unto its own uh, with, you know, not satisfying the rules of natural justice. Well, it's like saying the dog ate my homework, you know, all the time. <laughs> isn't it? it probably I mean, is. It is. It, it, in fact, it's infantile. It's embarrassing for them. It's and it's borne out in the district court where, you know, Alison had her suspension um not so much overturned because you weren't suspended anymore, but um, reversed. Yeah, that's right. Reversed suspension, reversed, and uh, as did Matt Shelton and and Peter Canada. So you know, once it actually got to a a, a legal um, forum, the medical council was found to have acted inappropriately. There's nothing there. That's right, but the, you know, there's not that many cases that go to the district court. They're all just. You know, doctors try and minimise and just try and get on with their lives, and so they sort of live with the with the findings from the from the medical council's investigations. Good on you for taking it that far. At least we get to see it in the light of day. Though the the judge wasn't, he didn't go all the way, did he? That was the thing. No, he flipped it for you, but he didn't get to the meat of it. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> Seems to be a reluctance to do that. Okay, um, should we head on the last point? Does the Medical Council of New Zealand jurisdiction have jurisdiction over someone who's not had an operating or a practicing certificate, but is still on the register? Who well, that's the question for the lawyer. <laughs> well, it's, yeah. Look, the question came down to whether or not um, a uh, the a health practitioner's competence is able to be reviewed. Uh, uh, by the, what is it, the PCC, um, Practitioner Competency Tribunal. Uh, and the legislation makes clear that their competence, uh, a health practitioner's competence can only be, well, no, no I'll be careful with that. A uh, health practitioner's competence uh, can be reviewed by a relevant authority and they must make inquiries into it uh, where the competence of a health practitioner who is registered with the authority and also holds a current practicing certificate. So that's usually annual, issued by the authority. And so 
applying the legislation, it seems that you'd need to have two things, both be registered by the authority and also hold a current practicing certificate, which would make sense, especially because the competence is being reviewed. And so you actually have to be actively practicing for your confidence, your competence to be reviewed. Uh, I don't profess to say that that's um, you know, a carte blanche rule, uh, having gone through the um, uh, legislation, uh, there might be other grounds elsewhere in the legislation for other things to be investigated, but certainly in respect of competence, um, the legislation makes clear that you need to be both registered and hold a current practicing certificate. Any final comments? Cindy, anything to say? Before yeah, I think that, up? you know, as, as a citizen and as a doctor, we actually have a duty to call out and question where we have concerns and not doing so, I think, is bringing the, the um, practice of medicine into disrepute. Alison? Well, yes, actually, that's an important point Cindy's just made. Is that uh, yeah, it is our duty if we see harm, see if we are seeing harm being caused to uh, a person or to people, uh, it's you know by the medical profession. It's our job to actually point that out. And so, you know, we've been concerned by the number of harmed and injured or injured, harmed, dead New Zealanders. Uh, following this vaccine, and we're not convinced that the, the deaths and injuries are being investigated sufficiently. Uh, so we're trying to bring the attention of the authorities to that, and nobody's listening. So the question is, where do you go when you're a doctor with concerns uh, and nobody's listening? And Katie, any final legal words? I mean, uh, uh, do you think this will all eventually come out in the wash in a legal sense? People are going to get justice. Can you see uh, a day? Look, the wheels of justice seem to move, move quite slow. You also need to have a lot of energy to be able to fight them, particularly when you, they're going after you at your professional capacity. Um, you know, The issue comes down to, and I say this regularly, is that cornerstone principles that we always have had that I could always confidently give you a legal opinion on have been ignored or turned on the head or are no longer available. Uh, and so this is just a couple of examples, informed consent, uh, the ability for a uh, doctor to treat the person as an individual. And you know these are things that we need to encourage. The pendulum needs to swing back to where it, where it was as opposed to you know these incredible things that happened under the uh, under the guise of fear um, and you know are being perpetrated by authorities and organizations at enormous cost to the taxpayer. Uh, it, it's it's you know a lot of these things shouldn't even be getting airtime if cool calm sensible heads were applied to this new variant on the way just saying <laughs> oh so many things i could say there. that's going to be fun isn't it's it, not the eh? bs strain the bs strain yeah it's always been the bs strain all right i want to thank dr cindy de villiers dr allison goodwin thank you you two for coming on our legal hub and Katie, good to have you back uh, as well. And we'll do it all again. We'll chew the legal stories of the week next week, same time Wednesday morning here at RCR. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.